The prohibition movement emerged after the Civil War when activist groups like the Women's Christian Temperance Union began pinning family dysfunction, poverty, and disease on the evils of alcohol. Today, the echoes of prohibition still ring out in Westerville, Ohio, where the city recently erected a sculpture that recognizes the divisions caused by the prohibition movement. The sculpture is called The American Issue. It was done by Matthew Gray Palmer. And it's very interesting because at the bottom, there's a huge limestone boulder, uh, which represents the people of the United States. And the, that boulder is actually split. And huh. it's, uh, there's a large wedge, granite wedge, that rises out of that. So uh, it kind of uh, is about wedge issues that split the United States. Um, so it's representative of that. And on either side of that granite wedge are quotes. On one side are quotes that are for prohibition. And on the other side are quotes that are against prohibition. And at the very top is a barrel that is broken apart and mm. um, it actually has, it's, the, it's a water feature. Water comes out of that and runs <laughs> on either side of the wow. wedge. And the two sides represent the idea of legislating morality on one side uh, and that's that's for prohibition. On the other side, it's more about um, liberty and letting uh, people choose uh, for themselves. It's um, it's a very interesting piece and uh, is now there in front of our city building. After the Anti-Saloon League moved to Westerville in 1909, it quickly rose to the forefront of the temperance cause. As a national nonpartisan organization, the Anti-Saloon League pumped out propaganda, lobbied politicians, and partnered with churches to pass legislation that outlawed alcohol, eventually resulting in the 18th Amendment in 1919. The other thing about the Anti-Saloon League is um, they viewed uh, big cities as uh, places of vice. That's historian Beth Weinhardt. She says the Anti-Saloon League appealed to emotion and seized on anti-German sentiment during World War I to promote prohibition. And they were nativist to a certain extent, they look at the immigrants that were coming into this country who were going to the cities, and um, many of them came from drinking cultures, your Germans, your Irish, uh, your Eastern Europeans, your Italians. And this movement was made up of rural uh, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. Hmm. Um, so and what's interesting is they were not even for a um, constitutional amendment in the beginning. Uh, they felt that they could dry up the country precinct by precinct uh, through the printed word and this nonpartisan approach. And mm -hmm. so they, um, they looked at the census in 1910, uh, and they'd taken local option as far as they could. Uh, if you look at a map of the United States or most states uh, in the Union, uh, which they looked at and they printed, they, the states uh, in the rural areas were dry. In your big cities uh, that were the bastions of immigrants, they were wet. Hmm. And they knew they were never going to get the city dwellers to use local option and dry themselves up. So they chose in uh, December of 1913 
to throw their lot in with uh, the WCTU and the Prohibition Party, who had been calling for a constitutional amendment all along. Mm. And uh, it's at that point uh, that there's a big march on Washington. Uh, they march down uh, Pennsylvania Avenue. They march to the Capitol. They sing Onward Christian Soldiers on the steps of the Capitol. They go into the gallery of the Capitol, and they unfurl petitions with tens of thousands of names calling for a constitutional amendment. So, Beth, give us some sense of the kinds of print material that the Anti-Saloon League was distributing. They began to print 40 tons of anti-alcohol information and ship it from here uh, every month. And so when you get to 1913, they are really at the peak of this printing. They have their own national and state editions of newspapers called The American Issue. They have their own magazine called The Patriot. Uh, and they have posters and flyers that are going all over the country and actually eventually around the world. They printed in six foreign languages. And once this country was dried up, they formed something called the World League Against Alcoholism to try mm. to dry up the rest of the world. Wow. <laughs> nice small goals. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, they were very savvy because they looked at the census of 1910, and the country was about 46% urban, and the rest was rural. And they knew with the influx of immigrants into the country— that by 1920, that was going to flip. Now, they were already in control of Congress and a lot of the state legislatures. So this flip meant that when uh, there was reapportionment, that they might be on the losing end of this mm -hmm. uh, as congressional districts changed. Um, and Pearlie Baker, who was the um, superintendent of the league when they came to Westerville, was very emphatic about cities. And I just want to read one quote. He says, the vices of the cities have been the undoing of past empires and civilizations. Hmm. It has been at the point where the urban population outnumbers the rural people that wrecked republics have gone down. Give me some sense of the general themes that can be teased out of the Anti-Saloon League's propaganda, like the kinds of emotional appeals or patriotic sentiment they tried to tap into. There's some amazing things they've done. There's one that says uh, the full father. It shows the father out drinking in the saloon with his cronies. And then below him uh, in another image is a young girl at home. Uh, she has tattered clothing, waif thin legs, uh, the plasters off the wall in the room, a pane in the window is patched. And there on the mantel, is a very empty stocking. So the whole saying on, on the cartoon is the full father and the empty stocking. It's very heart-wrenching. Wow. Uh, there's another one that says, Daddy's in there and our shoes and stockings and clothes and food are in there too and they'll never come out. And it's showing a young girl and boy standing outside the saloon doors. Mm. So they are excellent at framing that kind of appeal to our emotions. And um, one of the sayings they had leading into World War I is, Kaiserism abroad and booze at home must go. Mm -hmm. 
Why were German-Americans specifically targeted as one of the main culprits behind the supposed scourge of alcohol? Can you give some specific examples? There's a lead-up to the war, and of course we enter World War I in April of 1917. Uh, you start to see uh, a lot of cartoons uh, in their American-issue newspaper that address uh, their feelings about Germans, and they tie the Germans to the brewing industry. So, for example, uh, there is one cartoon that has, uh, it, it, the title on it is Killing Two Birds with One Stone. It has two buzzards sitting in a tree on a branch. One is labeled Brewer, and right next to him is another labeled Kaiser. Mm. And then it has a man who has a slingshot, and he is labeled All of Us, and he is picking up a rock that is labeled Wartime Prohibition. So they make the link uh, between the German brewers... And, of course, if you look at the names of the brewers in the United States, Miller, Schlitz, <laughs> right. Anheuser. Right, right, right. Uh, it, they're all German. And so it's easy to make this link. So this approach of bundling concerns for the business sector, anti-immigration sentiment, um, by thinking about rural America versus urban America, all this together proved successful, right? The 18th Amendment was passed in 1919, and alcohol was outlawed for over a decade. You have to tell me, how did things start to unravel for Prohibition? The Anti-Saloon League was very persuasive in their printed word, in their nonpartisan approach. However, I don't think we really know that the majority of people were on board with what ended up as the total prohibition of both uh, distilled products and brewed products. I mean, even the brewers uh, were thinking they would be exempt from the 18th Amendment, they <laughs> thought they'd be able to produce 3-2 beer. <laughs> and so they did not join together with the distillers to fight this in oh. the way they should. Um, so I think right from the beginning, it may have been doomed because you needed buy-in from a lot of people in order to have this kind of legislation. Mm -hmm. um, and initially, I think... People thought, well, you know, this may be good for our children. Uh, it may make, you know, for less drunks on the street, all of these things. But very quickly, what they began to see is that organized crime entered the vacuum that was left by the removal of the saloon. Mm -hmm. And so saloons were simply replaced by speakeasies. And a lot of the people who were for this... Uh, in principle, because it sounded good, could see when it began to criminalize activities that a lot of people were engaging in that really were not harming anyone, they began to have second thoughts. And so when you get to the mid-1920s, you have a movement against this. When prohibition was finally repealed in 1933, I have to imagine that a place like Westerville might have opened up a bar or, or saloon right away. In November 1933, before repeal had actually taken effect, we voted ourselves dry again here. <laughs> uh, the final vote. Wow. Yeah, we, we wasted no time. Uh, the final vote was uh, 1,063 against alcohol to 400 mm. uh, uh, citizens who wanted it. And, you know, that continued 
until January 2006. Oh, my goodness. And how did the locals react to this? Uh, well, someone was Johnny on the spot to buy that first beer. <laughs> so uh, some people were happy about it. Some, you know, longtime residents uh, saw this as a point of pride. Uh, we had kept this dry tradition going for so long. So it was heritage as much as anything. Mm -hmm. They would go outside the city and buy alcohol to bring in. Uh, to serve in their homes. So it wasn't like no one here drank because they did. Mm. But they liked the idea that there weren't businesses in our uptown business area selling it. I, I'm not quite sure how many establishments we have uh, in our business district now that sell alcohol. But um, we have two wine shops. We have our own brew pub where they brew alcohol. And actually, that uh, establishment is called Temperance Row. Mm. Uh, in honor of uh, the homes uh, that were built by the anti-saloon leaguers when they moved to our community. Beth Weinhardt is the local history coordinator at the Anti-Saloon League Museum in Westerville, Ohio. You know, Joanne, Nathan, you can't pick up the newspaper or look at your phone without seeing evidence and worry about divisions in the country. You know, this recent mm -hmm. election seemed to really dramatize one more time just how divided we are. It's hard to get some kind of historical perspective on that, but I guess that's what our podcast is about, so we'll go ahead and try <laughs> to do it. Joanne, I'm curious, would this be a surprise to the founders that the country seemed to be kind of coming apart at the seams like this? Well, I mean, I suppose I'd say <laughs> yes and no. On the one hand, they expected faction. They expected conflict. They did not assume that the nation would sort of waft its way <laughs> cloud-like <laughs> with no division at yeah. all. You know, they, they assumed that and they experienced that as we've talked about in the show. But what would have surprised them and what actually began to surprise them even within the first 10 or 15 years of the government was the likelihood of there being national political parties that just wasn't on their radar yeah. screen. So what did they think faction would look like? There'd be lots of them. There'd be lots of factions. There'd be lots of ideas and people and groups bouncing against each other and that out of all of that bouncing around and debating and compromising mm. would come policy. Mm. But, you know, the, the idea of a national party, first of all, parties at all, organized parties made them nervous because in their mind, a party was out for itself and not out for the good of the nation, which right. we could debate if that's true or not, but... <laughs> The idea of having a national party with the power and discipline and control that we're seeing today, and then as a result of that, the impact that that has on the nation as a whole, that definitely would have given them pause. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So the idea seemed to be, though, that uh, it was a temporary division, a temporary fight, and you'd be able to kind of shake hands, come back out the other side, and, and move on. <laughs> and I mean, w was the example of the loyalists that we saw in South Carolina uh, a precursor of things to come or a history left behind, do you think? 
Hmm. Well, I mean, I think there's one big piece about the Loyalist story, obviously, which is that in many cases when you have a place like South Carolina with a black slave majority, some of the concerns about who gets to vote and who gets to belong to the citizenry becomes pretty clear, right? You want to make sure that you have your property-owning class of white males all working it out ultimately because there's a lot more at stake if they don't. Um, and, And I wonder about the extent to which even a division like that between Loyalists and Patriots is easier to paper over if you have other kinds of division around disenfranchisement, mm. who gets to be a freeholder, those kind of things. And so it's, it's almost as if there's an inverse relationship where the more political participation is possible, the more these divides become almost irreparable. I'm not sure. Yeah. If you look at the maps of how people voted in antebellum America, you don't see the Civil War coming until pretty soon before it does. I mean, you know, in the 1830s mm. and 40s, you know, the patterns are party and they're national. And it looks like the parties are actually helping hold the country together along one axis right. as much as they are dividing it across another. Exactly. So obviously the Civil War is the big granddaddy of all divisions kind of sitting right, right here in the, in the middle of all this, right? right. Um, and, and I wonder about the extent to which, you know, we can look at the Civil War and the fault lines that it sharpens as a way to explain what happens in the later part of the 19th and early 20th century. In other words, is there something about the restarting of who has power, who gets to count as a citizen, the the way in which the country was redefining any number of variables about who got to, again, belong? How do we understand Mm -hmm. that to have set the terms for what becomes the political divisions of the late 19th and 20th century? Yeah, that's a great point, Nathan. I think what happens is that uh, for maybe 10 years after the war, uh, everything seems up for grabs. Uh, formerly enslaved mm-hmm. men uh, become citizens. New constitutions written across the United States. The, the 14th Amendment redefines what it means to be an American. All those things happen in just a few years with the war and its immediate aftermath. Right. But then it's almost as if the gravitational pull of, you know, of white privilege and of the two-party system reasserts itself. Hmm. And despite the war, um, you have those Two same two parties that had been there at the beginning of the war, back in control of everything, right? <laughs> right. And and African American right. people marginalized more with each passing decade to the beginning of the twentieth century. So it's almost as if to go back to your original point, Joanne, about the parties emerging to the surprise of the of the founders. The parties survive everything else, even when the Constitution seems hmm. to be failing, hmm. and then when the Constitution's remade. Wow. The two parties are still there, kind of containing and channeling and amplifying the division. So on one hand, as the saying goes, that Americans voted the way they shot after the Civil War. The Democrats, you know, stay the party of the South, by and large. Um, The Republicans stay the party of the North, by and large. And so the, the war maintains its imprint. But the two parties are constantly changing, adapting to immigration, to westward migration, to all these different kinds of things. Depending on your point of view, they're the great flywheels that kind of give stability (laughs) to American history, or they're the great engines of division (laughs) that keep dividing us. Mm. You know, what's fascinating about that is early on when, when parties were first coming into being, people realized, and they had felt the absence of an organization that allowed you to corral all kinds of people and spread a unified message and do all these concrete things that now we associate with party politics. Mm. So it's those very things that I think initially people were excited at because it allowed them to pull people together, just as we're saying here. Those are those are the precise things that the founding folk 
we're afraid of being able to pull people together and at the same time push people apart. So if you're talking about belongingness, which is kind of what where you started us off, Nathan, talking mm-hmm. about belongingness and talking about who has power and who doesn't, um, I suppose it helps to be part of an organization that has long roots and a lot yeah. of pull. I mean, on the face of it, at least, it seems very challenging because, again, as with the party structure, there's also structures of propaganda and communications and media, right? So, I mean, you, you can tune into Fox News or MSNBC and, and the information is going to be curated based on the right. political party that's behind that operation. And it, it does leave a lot of people unrepresented and unspoken for. Overall, as we look at the, the the grand arc of American history, are you folks optimistic or chastened or worried or something else? I mean, should we take <laughs> comfort from the fact that we've always been in each other's throats, <laughs> or uh, do we feel that we're in some new era when the divisions are just mm. too deep, too entrenched, too inflamed to overcome? Mm. Given the book that I just wrote, I've been thinking a lot (laughs) about divisions, right? And I've been thinking a lot about um, other times in American history when we've been driven to really polarized extremes, and there have been a number of them. Um, And we've pulled out – now – on the one hand, that's encouraging, right? We've pulled out of those moments, often the political process, and, and whether that's an election or a Supreme Court decision or a piece of legislation has helped pull us out because people have agreed that the process, if, if they don't like the answer, they can at least agree that the process has validity. Mm, right. So that mm-hmm. in and of itself is encouraging. But, you know, I mean, it's a cliche, but I'll say it anyway. You know, history doesn't repeat it teaches, but it doesn't repeat. So, you know, we're in an interesting mm-hmm. moment. I'm personally, as a historian, I'm watching very closely to see how the political process is playing out after this election. I think that will matter a lot. Mm. So what you just said, as long as we maintain faith in the in the structure and the process, uh, we can withstand it. It's when we lose faith in the very integrity of the courts or of the parties or of our leaders that things get really dangerous. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say, you know, two things that might be kind of surprising coming from me um, as a 20th century person, which is that we have to actually put down our 20th century thinking on this. And, and again, <laughs> not think in terms of election cycles, right, but think in the way that the founders did in terms of the long view or even the way, you know, our forebears under Reconstruction and the end of Reconstruction had to think, right, which was in terms of generations, not simply election cycles. Um, And it's not to say to be patient by way of being inactive, but to really understand that, like you said, the deep structures require a tremendous amount of work conducted over decades and decades and decades. And I think, you know, one of the things that we have as a nation to, to really work on is our is our patience in, in terms mm-hmm. of building a cohesive country and what that really does require. 